We are in Hebrews 11. We are going to finish Hebrews 11 this morning, um, starting in verse 20. Uh, but I, I want to do a little bit of I want to do a little bit of work because before we get there, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that I think we can get lost in a passage like chapter 11 and just go, why is he telling me all of these people and everything that happened to them? Number one, and what? Why does he keep reiterating things that he's already said? Because that's all chapter 11 is a summation of all the, you know, even these men who are like Moses, they, Jesus is better than Moses, better than the Mosaic law, better than all that Moses has brought. He still uses Moses in our passage today as a, an example. He says, by faith, Moses forsook you know, his, um, his status and brought himself down to the, the level of the Jew, which that those are my words, not, uh, not what Hebrews is actually saying verbatim. But I think we get lost in the fact that he's talking about this stuff and he continues to talk about it for an entire chapter. So instead of getting lost in, I want to ask you this question. Why do you think, what is the purpose of chapter 11. What do you think the ch- purpose of chapter 11 is so far as we've studied it? <laughs> it's always a safe answer. To glorify God. This is true, to glorify God, but how? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I think um, in a lot of a lot of ways, um, chapter eleven is discipling us into a mode of thinking that would be completely foreign to us if we did not have the Bible. I mean, think about it. Um, what other story that you know? Um, every story shapes us. I, I don't want to say the obvious, but it, it just does. So every type of story, the tortoise and the hare shapes us in a particular way, right? Snow White shapes us in a particular way. By the way, not necessarily in good ways, but they do shape us, right? Stories are shaping mechanisms. And the reason why stories have been since the beginning of time, including the way that the Bible starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, that's a story that we're all a part of. And all the things that you guys are saying are, are, are absolutely true. Reminders. Stories are helpful reminders about what God has done. Stories are to drive us to do and to follow in the steps, in the footsteps of God's people, even when we have faults. Because what we're going to see today is a bunch of people with a lot of faults, um, but yet still counted as faithful by the standard of God. I'm looking for a quote um, because I, I've been reading this book called Hearers and Doers by Kevin Van Huser. And he makes a whole, the whole book is about shaping disciples. It's about changing hearers from hearers only to doers also. All right. So he's, he's talking about how do we do this? And he equates it to a gymnasium. We, we don't go, a dancer does not go into the studio, learn a few steps and go out on the stage and perform. A dancer practices hard, all the fundamental things. Like, what does it look like to be up in a, in a point stance? What does it look like to point my toe in the correct way? I mean, they, start, they do all these things in the minutia so that when they put it all together for the steps for the performance, it all looks and works in harmony with one another. So it's, it's fitting that they have learned the fundamentals, the fundamental lifts, the fundamental things. So he likens it to a gymnasium, Christianity, the church particularly, as a gymnasium, and, um, and and one thing that he's talking about how basically disciples, and he makes all these disciples are disciples are disciples are comments, but particularly this, and I finally found the quote: uh, a disciple is a learner who spends his or her life walking after Christ. A disciple is a learner who spends his or her life walking after Christ. So if you're not walking after Christ, are you a disciple? That's a question that I think we all need to be asking. What does it look like to walk after Christ? I think chapter 11 is showing us what does it look like to walk after Christ. By faith, Abraham, that we've been talking about most of the time, was called out of Ur and go to the place where he would receive an inheritance. And he did so without questioning God, didn't he? The Bible doesn't, I'm sure that, look, we're all human. I'm sure that we had, he had some like doubts. No, no doubt. However, that's not how the Bible presents it. The Bible presents it as God called and he went. God told him, this will be your place. And he said, okay, Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. By faith, he received the inheritance that he was 
promised, even though he did not see the inheritance in its fullness, right? But I think what chapter 11 is trying to get after us is to show us that to be a disciple, even in the Old Testament, is to walk in the way of Christ. So what's the most important thing that we can do? And this is a preliminary a preliminary application. What is the most important thing that we can do as husbands and wives for our husband or wife? What is the most important thing? Focus on living in a way that depicts for the husband a love of Christ for his church and for the wife a love of the church for Christ. Okay, you were going to say something, Lydia? Agreed. Walk after Christ. Walk in a Christ-word manner. Yes, both of you. You're both right. What's the best thing that a son and a daughter can do for their parents? Walk after Christ. So what is it to look? What, what does our lives look? What do our lives look like, though? If our lives are supposed to be continually walking after Christ... What is it that we give ourselves to most of the time? Do we give them to scripture and prayer? Or do we give them to something else? Like our phones and Facebook. And maybe even some good books that we have. Or maybe to our work. But those are not bad things in and of themselves. But that's my concentration. But we're... we're, we're um... What do people, when people see you, what do they see? Do they see you either bathing your tongue or cheating work over the church and students or, or it's where do they see the outward? Yeah. So what story is shaping us is the question. What story is shaping us? Do you see what I mean? If we're called to walk in a Christ-word manner and yet we're being shaped by everything else, then what is shaping us? I was really convicted by this this week. And Paul Washer has a way of like smacking you in the face with it really gently. So, but I think chapter 11 is showing us the steps or the pattern of a faithful life through all the generations of the forefathers before, before Christ. The one you brought up as an example of Abraham leaving his home. What struck me yesterday as I was thinking about this chapter was Christ leaving his home yes. to come to the place that he would afterwards inherit. Yeah. Yeah. This would be his inheritance. Who knew? God had been planting those seeds since Genesis. And he had already enacted the plan before Genesis. So with that, let's get into Hebrews 20, keeping, keeping this in mind. We're supposed to be shaped by this in some way, shape, or form, but it's mostly to shape us into walking in a Christ-word direction. So let's look at chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 20. I'm going to read through verse 40. If I say I'm out of gas, somebody else pick up because my voice does not feel great. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, 
Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, rather choosing to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down around, uh, fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what shall more? What more shall I say? For the time time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak. Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who though who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to the flight. Women received back their dead from the res by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about this, about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts, in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So I want to start there at the end. And the reason why is because chapter 11 is all about not receiving what was promised. But we, we as in all of them, and all of us who believe have received what is promised and that was made per perfect, right? So let's start at the end and say, start in verse 39. And all of these, though committed through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Where else have we heard this in chapter 11? Where else have we heard this in chapter 11? It's going to give us a clue to the structure. Chapter, uh, verse 13. And so verse 13 is in the middle of a talk about Abraham, right? But had he talked about through death, they even though they died, they had not received what was promised yet in, in chapter 11? Has they, have they talked about this yet up till verse 13? Or is it something that is new? Verse 10 refers to that city that we're looking for. Yes. The author has not ha actually said anything about they did not receive their promises yet. 
right? He says, he says something about how he says something about how every one of these people have seen the promises of God, heard the promises of God, and yet um, just continues. He just continues to move on. They heard the promise. They did the thing. Like Abel, for instance, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was committed as righteous. But, and he says, through his faith, though he died, he speaks by faith. He doesn't talk about he didn't receive the promise. And so what's the point? What, what, do you notice this, this, this thing called an inclusio? You have this uh, in the Bible where they say one thing early in the, in the chapter and then they say another at the end. So does somebody want to help me with an inclusio? What's the point of an inclusio? Does anybody know? It's a technical reason. Is it to, to bind together? It absolutely does bind everything that comes between. And so it all has one point. All has one point. By faith, they did not receive. By faith, they believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness. And yet they did not receive what was promised until Christ. Okay, so here's what I want you to hear from this first little bit. Faith looks to the future and trusts God's promises. Faith looks to the future and trusts God's promises. Before talking about all this, Abel didn't look to the future. He, he, did, what was, he did what was commanded to him. We did what he was supposed to after God's own heart, right? He was face, face, like running after God's own heart. Enoch was a righteous man, so much so that he was just taken up into glory, right? Um, and then you have Abraham. And, no, and Abraham is where we see faith looking toward a promise, okay? So for those of you who like to take notes and bullet points, faith looks to the future and trusts God's promises. That's the whole point of verse 13 to verse 39. That whole section is faith looking toward the future and trusting God's promises. It's just amazing how that message gets driven to us through so many places in Scripture. And if you're not reading in Scripture, if you're reading something else, are you ever going to hear a message like that? Think about, think about all of the stories that you can think of. Just think of, is there another story that says, faith looks to the future, and trust God's promises. Something even remote to it. You can kind of cheat here and say any other story has been based off of, any other good story has been based off of the story of the Bible, and therefore there are some that have some of these elements. But the answer is it's not apart from the Bible or God's word. Would we have anything remotely like this? Because most of the things, if you look at pagan religion, what what is the object of what's what's the object of the faith of a faithful pagan, say in the Roman Empire? Who who are they worshiping? The king? Yeah, Caesar is king, Caesar is Lord, but Caesar is not always their object of faith. What? Jupiter. Who, who's another guy or girl? 
Z Zeus and Jupiter are the same. That's okay. Neptune. Yes, yes, and that's the key there, is that they would worship these gods so that they might be blessed in a certain way. Does that have anything to do with faith? Well, it's a secular type of faith. They're trusting that they're, they're, they're the Pez dispenser that they say they are. Yes. Right. Jealous in, in a human way. Yeah. They have all human traits. They don't have those traits in the supernatural traits. They're all human, human humanoid, but they're human like. And I, what was going through my head as you were asking the question about are you going to hear a story that has this message is a lot of deity called entertainment. Hmm. If you look, there's, there's American-style movies and there's European-style movies. And the American-style movie always has the happy ending. They get the proper thing that they've been striving for. In the, in the European-style movie, the hero always dies. Yeah. What's the, what's, the, what's the American dream? Anybody know? Yeah. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's exactly what you're talking about. All American movies end with the, the happy ending. And the all the European mendings end with the, the hero dying. Pretty interesting how that works. Because they they have seen enough to where they know that it does not work out the way you always want it to. And if it does, it usually means you're dead. So um oh man, you hit something and I'm now forgetting it. But that's that's okay. It wasn't it's here neither here nor there. So uh, with that. Well, there are, there are no other stories that shape us this way. Does that make sense? So when we give ourselves to a story that shapes us to a, to a shallow understanding of the world or a shallow understanding of each other, a shallow understanding of God, and we never try to dig any deeper like the prophets and the, the people that we have talked about so far, we don't spend time with the Lord, our lives are going to be shaped by those things that we do spend time with. And, and so, as we see, um, these people, they were commended through their faith. It was counted to them as righteousness. And yet, they did not see what was promised that counted to them as righteousness. It's just the theme of, of all these other people, before Abraham and after. Abel was counted righteous because he gave the right kind of offering. His heart was set after God to give the first fruits of his, uh, of his flock, not like Cain who just gave him what he thought he should give him, but not the best and the, and, the, and the first fruits. But then we give him to verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us, something better for us. Recall, who have we been hearing about in chapter 11? Just name people. Anybody? Samson, Moses, Abraham, Sarah, can we stop for a second and look at Sarah and Jacob? Sarah and Jacob are like splitting images of one another. And yet, like Sarah, for instance, actually, if you read the if you read Genesis account, you're hearing an interpretation of the Genesis, Genesis account because of God's faithfulness to Sarah. Right? So he's reading back on, not onto, but like bringing out this idea of God's faithfulness to Sarah and Sarah being faithful to that 
instance of promise. But what did Sarah do when he told her, when, when she overheard? Yeah, Isaac's name means laughter because she, like most every other, all these other people, all the other characters that are in here were faulty and very, very, very self-sufficient people. Uh, not unlike us. We are also faulty. We sin. We sin because we didn't get what we wanted. We sin because we thought we should have had something different. We sin because we relied on self and not on God and his word. And I think if we understand something about how sin works in the people, the lives of these people, did sin mitigate their faith? And why is that? God is the one who gave them the faith. That faith cannot be taken. That faith cannot be changed. So go back to Sam, go back to, um, uh, not Samson, go back to Gideon for a second. What do you know about Gideon's story? You can even turn to um, Judges, I believe it was Judges 7, if you really wanted to look at it. Yep. Like, like, oh, Lord, you make this wet and make this cut. Yeah. I'm going to make it again. I'm going to have to do it again before I follow what you're saying. Like, yeah. And I even then, when it came time to go down against them, God says, hey, if you're afraid, and he sends, a, he sends all of them away. Over that conversation about, oh, that's the sword of Gideon. What happens? He gets down to 313 men. Uh, not just not useful numbers, but not useful men. I don't know if you've actually paid attention to what they're doing, but he actually tells the vigilant men to go home. <laughs> and he took the ones that drink like dogs who didn't care. Why is that? Because God was, God was making a point that I am the one that will save Israel. Not you, Gideon. You're just my vessel. I mean, the New Testament phrase that the excellency of the power might be of God, not of us. That applied from the very beginning. In fact, that's the reason why Adam and Eve are our first parents, and they are the ones that are also the progenitors of sin, because they took that and flipped it on its head. They took that one phrase and flipped it on its head. So. Gideon actually doesn't stop there. Like, they win the battle, right? But that's God, you know, confusing the Philistines. What happens with Gideon's life later? Does anybody know? Anybody remember this part? Downhill from there. Why? Do you have any idea? I mean, his selfishness, his pride. They go to make him king. They go to make him king. And what does he do? He says, I am not king. But he names his, his son the son of the king. That's what his name means. I don't remember Rox's name, but his name means the son of the king. So he's self-proclaimed king. He refused kingship falsely. But so Gideon was not like the greatest guy in the world. And yet he's used as an example of faith. No, we don't want to be like Gideon. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You hear that a lot. Dare to be a Daniel. Um, in fact, Van Hooser would say that's a decent and right 
uh, interpretation, but he says it with lots of qualifications. What did, I mean, Daniel wasn't exactly a perfect man either. He was pretty close. However, however, his prayer life should be emulated, right? His trust in the Lord should be emulated. Is Daniel actually talked about in the Hall of Faith? Interesting. Who is from that story? The other three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the correct, yes. We all know him by Shadrach and Benny um, from VeggieTales. Oh, he's not, act they're actually not named, but it does say, quench the power of fire. Okay, endured, what is it? Um, stop the mouths of lions. Daniel and David. I think he's talking about David there, particularly, because he stopped the mouth of the lion. The angel of the Lord stopped the mouth of the lion in Daniel's case. So, like this idea of all these men and all these people have displayed not enormous amounts of faith and had more faith than everybody else. They were just trusting in God's promise to bring it forward, even though, even though they made mistakes along the way. And so as we look at all these people, you have to see that faith continues to look to the future and trust God's promises no matter the circumstance. Sword, flame, um, crushing, being crushed would be another one, uh, dead children, famine. It doesn't matter. We are all to look for Christ and trust in God's promises. Faith looks toward the future and trusts God's promise. So let's, let's look at Moses really quickly, or uh, let's start at the beginning, 20 to 23, 20 to 22. We are never going to get through all this if I continue to ask questions. So <laughs> I want to just point out a couple of things about how this is all structured. The 20 to 22, we see by faith, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph all act on the blessing of God. Okay, so they all trust God's promise enough to still bless, like for instance, uh, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Jacob blessed both sons, Ephraim and Manasseh of Joseph. And then Joseph acted on the blessing, acted on the promise that they will one day have their own land and said, send my bones back to Canaan where you came from. And so the idea is that God, or that these are all, they are all trusting in God's promise enough to bless the, new, the future generations. So they bless the future generation because they trust on God's promise. Any questions about that little section there? No questions. Okay. Another way of saying it is faith acts. Faith has action to it. 23 till 29, we see him spend a little bit more time on Moses. And we've talked about Moses previously. And Moses was held up as a, well, what, how, how is Moses spoken of in chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5 of Hebrews? How is he spoken of? Less than Jesus, but what? What is he? What is he? Jesus is the object, right? The, the, the temple himself. 
but, but Moses was serving a shadow. He was a steward, right? He was a steward of God's promise, right? And so he's trying to steward and bless the people, disciple the people into understanding and looking toward God's promises. And he had a lot of problems doing that. Um, and, and in fact, you can read all about it. Uh, in fact, I, I would trust that you would go read all about it. But one of the, one of the things that I want to point out here is that the author of Hebrews is taking all the events, the major events in Moses's life, and he is showing you that, hey, number one, his parents were an example of faith. They did not, the beauty of the child the beauty of the child compelled them to hide Moses, right? Well, why, why would they need to hide Moses in the first place? They were killing all the firstborn, right? And so what was going to happen to them if they were found hiding their child? They're going to die too. So he, he's, he's absolutely, he's pointing out the faith of the parents went kind of into Moses by osmosis in a lot of ways. Um, not, not really being transferred one to another, but you, you see that his, the pattern continues by faith. Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter, son, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but he chose to be identified as a Hebrew, the mistreated, the, the strangers and sojourners. And then he says, he considered verse 26. This is a huge point for us. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. Now, did Moses know that Christ was coming? It, what would he have known? It was yet to come. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what was the promise? What was the promise given to Abraham. Father of many nations through him. And what else? Yep. And the land, the land of Canaan or the land would be all, they'd be blessed with the land. But I don't think that's the, the promise that he was having faith in. What was the promise before that? Genesis three. Yes, the seed of the serpent be crushed by the seed of the woman. I don't think land, no offense to, you, to, to those who have this thought, I don't think land is a, it's a great signifier of wealth, but it is not a great signifier of promise, right? It's not really a, a high reward because land goes in and out of hands so quickly. Egypt have land. In fact, what happens when Jacob comes down to Egypt? Does anybody know? When Jacob, they gave him land. <laughs> they gave him land outside of Egypt. They wanted some of the best land, some of the best farmland. So he had land, but it wasn't the promised land, right? And so Joseph says in, in his last speech, you know, send my bones, make sure to take my bones back to Canaan because he knows that he knows the promise that not only are they going to be blessed with the land and blessed with the, all the, the things of Abraham, but that the seed of the woman would ultimately crush the seed of the serpent. And in that process, they're all of their, the, the treasures of Christ would be given to them. So why does this 
Why does the author of Hebrews say he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt? He was looking forward to the coming Christ, to the seed of the woman. So he doesn't predicate it on the on the land thing. He predicates it on the, the seed of the woman. And there's some other thing which he could not have done. I'm not saying that this was... It's true. But the, his life, the God is pointing this out as being following after Christ. Yeah. And that is how well that nestles in with Christ being off of the, the kingdoms of the world if mm. he would put out to the enemy. And he chose instead to suffer affliction yep. for the people of God. He does. I think in this uh, little section here, you can see that he trusts in God's power Right, he trusts God's power. He trusts God's promised power to crush the seed of the serpent. I think that's why he considers the reproach of Christ a greater reward than the treasures of Egypt. He knows, he knows that God's promise will be fulfilled. So then we get down to this part in twenty-seven. He says he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Somebody want to explain for me what that means? He endured as seeing him who is invisible. He, he saw God's revelation to the burning bush. We have a direct experience with God. Mm-hmm. And, what is, and what does God tell him? I will be with you. Right? So not only does he trust in God's promise and his power. He says he trusts in God's presence. So God's presence is being trusted. That God's present presence predicates his promises. So his promises are not coming out of just some left field guy that's saying, if you do this and you do these things well, then I'll give you the land. No, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is with Moses and he is with his people, and he can trust the presence of God to take and to deliver his people from the penalties of sin, the death that is in Egypt, into the promised land that is coming. Moses understands that God's presence is to be trusted, and not to be something like the Roman gods, where it was all sorts of, well, I don't know, did I think something wrong, and Zeus saw that thought? You know, it, it was, or just him just being crazy. Uh, I mean, that's the best way to put the Roman gods in a nutshell, crazy. Um, but his presence is real and it is with him and he knows that. He can trust God's presence. And the same thing happens. You see, because he trusted in God's presence, or not because he trusted in God's presence, because he God revealed himself and he by faith believed God, he was delivered. And the people were delivered from Egypt. And what happens to the Egyptians? They attempted to do the same and were drowned. And why is this? To display God's power and God's presence in the world. His power over the Egyptian gods and everybody who thought that was that he thought was great, and his presence delivers his people. These are these are things that we're trying to see this from Hebrews 11, 20 to 40. Remember, faith looks to the future and trusts God's promises. Now we're at 10, 13. Go ahead. Well, I, I 
rethinking. Gotcha. I would love to hear it, but I would, I do want to finish. So remember where we started was though committed through their faith, verse 39, they did not receive what was promised. And as you go through all these people, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, prophets, were any of these perfect men? No, not at all. In fact, I would say if you act like Gideon, you're probably going to find out very quickly that the Lord your God does not like being put to the test. Um, however, in the time of Gideon, it makes sense that he would do that because he, the word of the Lord was scarce at his time. In the time of the judges, the word of the Lord was not heeded. And so how does he know what the Lord's word is? They ask him, I mean, what did he do? He said, Lord, if this is really you and this is something you really want me to do, make the ground wet and keep the fleece dry. He does. And he says, what? But the next thing he said, well, I, okay, but um, if you can make the fleece wet and everything else dry, I'll believe you. And then he goes and he does two more tests after that. So I can't seriously blame Gideon, but here's the problem. We now have the word of God in front of us. And to test the Lord like that is to be disobedient to his word. To, be, to test the Lord like Jephthah did, or Samson even, or Gideon, they, any of these guys, to test him like that is to be disobedient and to sin against God. Um, one of my favorite authors, and I'm forgetting his name, Luther, uh, Martin Luther, uh, said, said it this way. Said it this way. He says, this, the word of God is the scepter of Christ. What is the scepter of Christ? What is the scepter? What is the scepter? Symbol of his authority. If we were to go against the word of God as his scepter, what are you doing? You're going, you're, you're, you're literally not following the king. What is the penalty for not following the king? Yeah, losing your head in most cases in the medieval times. So here's the deal. Is that by faith, all these men were, were carrying out the plan of God through time. They were, none of them were perfect. None of the women were perfect, um, particularly the, uh, none of the women were perfect. Nobody was held in high esteem as I feel like we mostly do. Like we say, oh, we want to be like David, but hey, David was an adulterer. David was selfish. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. Put it together. They want to say, have friendships like Jonathan did. Welcome the stranger and the sojourner like Jonathan did with David, even though Saul was after David. Why did he do that? Because he was a man after God's own heart. Was Jonathan actually a perfect man? No. He did a lot of things selfishly. Uh, if you read that, read that story, Jonathan ain't the, the right guy either. But he is a man after God's own heart. And he was moving about God's plan and God towards because of his faith and God's promise. Here's the, here's the point. Even in the, in the portion where we have Elisha and Elijah both raising children from the dead, you know that like they both, they both came to widows, both widows' sons die, both are raised to life. That even in those moments, those widows probably had no faith that it was going to happen. 
And Elijah and Elisha both say, why did this happen, Lord? But both continue to act in faith and seek the, the face of God in the midst of those things. And God raises those boys, not by their power, but because of the power of faith and the power of God in acting through those, those instances of faith. So here we are. We've gone through not line by line and person by person, but we've seen one thing, that faith looks to the future and trusts God's promises. The faith of the Old Testament saints and the content of, that they had in of that faith is the same type of content that we need. We need to trust in God's promises, except for them, they were looking forward and we are looking back. We saw that God was faithful and brought a Messiah. His name was Jesus. And now we know that God will bring the Messiah in the end. And a sword will come out of his mouth and he will cut down his enemies and all will bow the knee, finally. That's what we have faith in. That's where we trust God's promises. We trust in the fact that it was future, it was it was not, it was future for them, it's past for us, and also the future coming of Christ. Are there any questions about Hebrews? I got one minute. I think when I look at this first part of it, you know, Abraham basically left mm-hmm. and went forward. And then in verse uh, 10, where uh, it talks about looking for the city which is the foundation for the building of God. Okay. Then the rest of it, I look at it as a parenthesis. He's talking to the Jews, basically, that rejected Christ primarily. Yeah. Okay, or this coming, but saying, no, this is the Christ. We see that coming into 39 and 40. Okay. And then chapter 12 has no beginning to it. You see, you know, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. So the application is for us. Yeah. Uh, to the fact that by faith now, we look to his coming again. Yep. Okay. His second coming. By faith. Yep. 100%. I mean, the last, the last verse to close us out says, since God had provided something better for us, that's inclusive of all them and us, that apart from us, the believers today, the believers in, in the Hebrew, the time of the Hebrews, and now, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So they did not receive the promise and were not made perfect because Christ had not yet come. Now, while living on this side of it, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. And we live in light of that second promise along with them. So with that, let's pray and we'll be done. Oh, Father, we pray that by faith we will continue to walk out what you have ordained for us to endure. That whether it's a valley or a hilltop, Lord, whether it's a high or a low, Lord, we are looking to you and having faith in your promises and promised return of the King. And we pray that you would be continually shaping us to be more like Jesus, that we might live in a Christward manner for the sake of all those around us and that we would forsake the sins that hold us back from doing so. 
Lord, I, I pray that you would continue to put our eyes and fix them on your son, even through this worship service to come. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.